Hey everybody, welcome to Darisha's podcast, Elite Mastery. I created this um, series of podcasts because I felt that um, there's lots of information out there to inspire and motivate individuals like myself and people that I work with uh, throughout the year and all the speeches and talks that I do. So throughout the month and throughout the year, I'll be interviewing people who are experts in their fields and I consider them as masters. Enjoy the show. Hello listeners and viewers, welcome to my episode number five of Darius's Fireside Chat uh, with Elite Masters. I'm very proud actually, I have today a, a, an absolute elite master that I know very, very well and he's helped my business tremendously. Um, I will be chatting with a successful, hard-working, award-winning lawyer, Khaled Shivji, whose passion is to help clients strengthen, reduce the cost of the legal and compliance and HR functions. Khaled's achievements are outstanding and I am sure you will enjoy listening to me as I read them to you. In 2014, Khaled became the first lawyer ever to achieve Do Telecommunications Innovation Award for an employee. The award was personally presented to him by Do's CEO, Osman Sultan, during the company's annual employee gala. Khaled was responsible for building Agreco's Middle East and North African legal department the department that was in 2018 admitted to the legal 500 to its GC power list. For two years running, 2017 and 2018, the Oath Middle East cited Khaled as one of the region's top general counsel. Khaled has worked with the British Attorney General, Baroness Patricia Scotland, whose office he managed at the House of Lords in London. Khaled is the only lawyer globally who is dual qualified in internet engineering and law. He supports pro bono initiatives and regularly mentors emerging lawyers and students on how to advance their careers. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming our guest for today. Welcome. Thank you. Absolute pleasure to be here. Did I read it okay? Did I miss anything? Absolutely perfect. perfect. Not bad for a dyslexic. Not bad at all. Thank you. Not bad. It was was pitch perfect. Thank you. Uh, Well, welcome. Were you nervous coming here? Not at all. We know each other. We're, we're good friends. I'm absolutely delighted to be here today. Great. I'm, I'm honoured for you to, to actually make the time. And I know your daughter's been not well. Uh, and we, ha- we were due to meet a couple of days ago. And unfortunately, she wasn't well. She was in hospital. That's right, yeah. So uh, thank you for m- so much for coming. And thank God she's feeling better. Thank you. I'll pass that on to my wife as well. Done. Please do. I haven't met her yet. No, you haven't, funny enough. I'd love to meet her. Her name's Hannah. She's a brilliant person. Um, I'm back next week. I'm going to India uh, tomorrow for four days and I'm back I'd love to maybe we go for a drink after work maybe a coffee or something just to get to know her she's, say hello she's expressed a lot of interest in meeting you done I'll be honoured thank done. you done. so we'll arrange it for next week thank you uh, tell me a little about yourself how old are you where were you born your origins your family I'd okay. love to know I know we had a brief chat about it when we first met a while ago. well thank you I mean I I have a very very interesting um, background um, I am originally of Indian origin. Okay. Uh, my grandparents were born in India. Uh, my parents were born in East Africa. I was born in Canada. And later on in my life, my parents moved to the UK where I was born. So you've never been up. to uh, Africa? Oh, I've been several times. Oh, have you? I absolutely love it out there. Really? It's East Africa, where you were born. Which country? So my mother was born in Kenya. Yeah. So we still have family out there. Right, right. Um, they live just in the outskirts of Nairobi. Um, absolutely fantastic. Is that where you went to see the mum's side? Absolutely and it's absolutely amazing going to Nairobi. Absolutely it's an incredible city. The people there are so driven and hard-working and entrepreneurial 
and you learn a lot from the way that they talk and the way they want to create opportunities and it isn't the stereotypical image of an African country at all. Kenya. People are ignorant. When you say Africa, they just automatically think it's some kind of a backward continent, right? It couldn't be further from the truth. It's an absolutely, Kenya, in my opinion, is an absolutely inspiring Is country. it safe? Uh, very safe, very safe. I mean, in any country you visit, you have to take precautions. Of course. Um, no one's going to walk down the street when you're on holiday flashing their jewellery and expensive sure. watches, so you don't do that in Nairobi. And secondly, when you're out travelling, you make sure that you're with people you know and you take a pre-planned journey just like you would in any other country around the world and it could be as safe as you want it to be. Wow. So your mum's family are in Kenya and they've been there f for a while. They've mind, mind you, their past generation was Indian, right? That's right. Okay. That's right. So, so my, my grandparents were merchant traders. Right. So they came from India and um, settled in East Africa. And their role was effectively to move goods from India uh, to Africa and onto the um, uh, the you know the Commonwealth as it was then called. So what type of goods? Anything to do with merchantile goods, raw materials, um, kitchenware. Um, it got so the business was so successful for them that my grandparents operated one of the very largest um, homeware stores in Nairobi at one point. Um, in, in a place a shop that called ABC. Are they still with us? No, they've, they've moved on now, but the the legacy is still there. So what what my my. Uh, my most surreal experience I had was when I was on a flight from Dubai to Nairobi once and I just happened to get talking to the gentleman sitting next to me um, and uh, we started comparing notes and each other's background and he said I think I know your grandparents it was absolutely surreal so his parents and my grandparents were part of the same so social circle and when I started citing all the names of my grandparents he said yes I know them very well and he started reading off their names to me um, and the people that they associated with it was absolutely surreal I bet you were so proud. Very, very proud. My, um, one of the strongest drivers in my life is that the, the women in my family are extremely strong-minded and have always been very, very strong-minded and leaders in their own right. Um, my grandmother, on my mother's side, um, was the leader of the Girl Scouts in Kenya. And she herself represented the Girl Scouts in Kenya at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, in 1957, in non so just hearing stories like that about what she achieved and how how high she'd risen up uh, in that organisation has been so inspiring for me. Even as a child, when you know your you know generations back, they've been successful, honourable people. I think automatically you want to live up to those standards. When you say, I think a lot of it. I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of it actually comes from not wanting to emulate the standards, but to merely not let down. Your relatives you don't want to let them down their legacy their achievements are things to be proud of and if you start slipping behind and falling behind you're effectively tarnishing their legacy Name. because people will look at you and say well you're the grandparent of a really successful person and what have you become in your life and they were honorable um, they were this they were that they were correct and they expect the family value to be passed on as well and I, I think that's what's been driving me to achieve as much as i can in my life because i want to make sure i live up to that and to keep showing that uh, sort of um, that behaviour um, for people who will learn and depend on me in the future That's as well. amazing. That's amazing. I left Iran 78 and my f grandfather was a mayor of cities, Mashhad and Long, which is like big cities. And um, I didn't think anything of it. I was a child. I was 12 years old. Went to UK. 10, 12 years ago I went back and the word got round that the grandson of Mr. Sudi was coming and there was a small crowd gathered to see me. I couldn't believe it. Amazing. I was like 30, 40 years later, 
the people are gathering because of my grandfather. He passed in 1974. Mm. So just, you know, 40 years later, they still come to see the grandchild. I've, I was so touched and I thought, you know what, I've got a huge legacy to live up to. And I think, I think your grandfather's achievements for having a crowd coming out to meet mm. you must have been absolutely incredible. The number of lives he must have changed yes. for the better. He, he stopped all dodgy business in those cities. He put them all in jail. Now those people are rulers of those cities. <laughs> it's just, I think, the, the old days, there may have been one or two families who ripped the country. Now there's thousands of families ripping the country. I think it's the same in every country. I think every country has got its bad apples. I think there's a lot of good in every country, and I think we need to look past that and see the positive sides of people and not to necessarily focus on the negatives as well. Sure, sure. So, UK... And do you always want to be a lawyer? Well, the, the secret about my career is that in my teenage years, um, one expects to have a lot of career choices thrown their way. Um, career coaches, mentors, members of my family, friends and relatives will often ask me, well, what do you want to be in your career? And there's never been a lawyer in your family, no? I was the first lawyer in my family. Oh, wow. But in my, in my teenage years, um, funny enough, I never wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, it was the very, very... It was the lowest ranking career on my list. You just like arguing with people and you thought, I've got a talent in this. I think a lot of it came from the fact that when I went to went into business and I started um, working full time, I think then I realized what the value of arguing was. And when you start winning, yes. actually people start realizing, saying, actually, you know, you yeah, get paid more for doing this. need this, this guy. Yeah. Indeed. Um, so, in fact, when I was a teenager, I um, wanted to be a doctor. And um, obviously everyone's got a an interesting history and I'll, I'll share with you this, that I, I, I got my first girlfriend when I was studying for my um, college degree yeah. and unfortunately I didn't get the grades then to go on and study medicine but well, one of the lessons the in life as well. Well you got the girl. Got the girl then obviously Who you, cares? You, well I mean it, it's one of those things you know you're you're in love for the very first time and you want to you know uh, spend as much time with your partner as possible but obviously that takes your mind off This study. is X-rated so continue please. Absolutely. If you want to go into detail more than welcome. Is so that okay? I, yeah. I think, I think I, I'll share about as much of that but what I then realised is I said look let me try to make the positives uh, positive out of um, the situation so at that stage then when I finished university um, Brunel University came knocking with an offer to study internet engineering they said you've got the grades you've got the qualifications you've got the background you've got the technical ability and How long ago was this? Uh, how long ago was it? Well, gosh, I studied in, started studying in 2000, in 2000 at the height of the dot-com boom. Sure. And when you got, got offered a chance to study internet engineering, you, you go for it because that's the hot topic the of the day. What is internet engineering? I've never heard of it. Well, internet engineering for them was primarily electrical engineering. It was about learning about the substance and hardware of what the internet was back then. It was absolutely fascinating. Um, they were learning about how to connect. But that core is still the same, isn't it? The internet is the same. It's based on the same technology. I mean, people talk about um, fiber and fiber connectivity, um, and that was already around in 2000. Um, people were talking about fiber connectivity in the speeds of a, of a, a megabit per second. Now, fiber speeds are in the hundreds of megabits a second. And it just goes to show how fast uh, technology has evolved since then. But the technology is still the same. Yes. And the principles are still the same. Um, you have a system of interconnected computers and networks uh, which can talk to each other using a common language. Um, the common language is HTTP or TCP IP. Um, and those computers then go on and actually share information and allow people to look up information on each other's networks. So at that time, uh, it, it was a path into government, for instance, or c commercial? It was mainly a path into commercial. See, the no one really knew what would happen if you had a degree in internet engineering. And that's one of the things that I've 
been trying to advise people of today is that there are really, really interesting degrees out there um, that people are now taking up, for example, in analytics, uh, computer sciences is still very popular, um, artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, and no one really quite knows what's going to happen when you finish those degrees, but I say to people, go for knowledge. it, do it. And it's that, exactly that knowledge. And it's also, um, it's about creating opportunities for people to go out and do completely different things. So when you look at um, how people are now coming out of university, they're doing jobs that had never been thought of sure. uh, 10, 15 years ago. Sure. And there's more new jobs coming all along. I think so as well. And I think, and I think that people need to see past the traditional boundaries of what happens when they come out of university and go into very traditional jobs and traditional careers and actually start thinking, well, what can I make of this? Um, yes. No one's actually telling me what I can't do. What can I do? Yes. And simply going out and heading, out, heading in that direction. Yes. Going back a little bit more, and I hope you don't mind me mentioning it. Um, you're a fighter, right? Mm. You're a fighter. You had some physical challenges, health challenges, right? Well, yeah. I mean, um, I've been... Um, partially hearing for the majority of my life. Um, and How did that happen? Was that an accident? or It was mainly just from birth, actually. Um, and I, I, I think that I'm probably more open to discussing it nowadays than I was in the past, because it was a very mm. sort of uh, sensitive topic for me, because I didn't know how people would talk about it or think about it or how they would judge me. Um, but I've worn hearing aids since I've been very, very young. Um, but the thing that now made me uh, more accepting of... Did that affect your schooling? Did children say anything, or was it bullying, or no? I think, I think children generally can be quite mean. I think all children, irrespective of whether you have a disability or not, or, or you suffer from dyslexia or, or some other condition, I think children can be very, very judgmental. And I think that the strong ones that come out of school are the people who've been afflicted by something like that and have come through it for the better. And so it's made me a stronger person as a Amazing. result. Amazing. And because um, I would never have known until you told me. I was like, wow, this guy's cool. It's Amazing. one of those things, I mean, I, I think that so I've do you lip-read or you can hear through your hearing aid? I hear... A bit of both. Well, actually both, actually. Uh, I lip-read primarily um, uh, about 40 to 50% of the time, and the rest of the time I'm just hearing what people are telling me. Um, but lip-reading is a very powerful skill to build up, so um, as long as you know what to anticipate when someone's saying something, and what's going to come next out of their mouth, you're almost at the stage where you're lip-reading. I used to watch, because uh, my ex-mother-in-law was... She was deaf. And the funny, st it's not, it's, it's a story that's quite interesting. She was on a school bus and a German bomb landed next to the bus. Gosh. And it blew her eardrums off. So 1942 or something. Really, and now she's in her 80s, late 80s. And, uh, but they put a chip in her head here. Mm -hmm. And she's got a, and now she can hear. And I never forget the day she could hear for the first time since the age of nine. She was crying, she could hear the sound of birds and everything else. It was really, really amazing. But I used to watch football, and she used to say, oh my God, I can't believe he said that. <laughs> oh, I can't believe she said, oh, they're gonna attack, they're gonna do this. But now, they all do this. That's have you right. noticed, all the, all the, somebody must have said, there's people out there reading your lips, so when they talk about it, they've covered the mouse. Have you noticed? I've noticed, mm. I've noticed. Yeah, the, the, I mean, lip reading at uh, football players and referees is so easy, because yeah, they have to speak. have about four words, haven't they? Either. Well, half of them start with F. And probably a lot more profanity and, to go with that come as well. on. That's exactly. Like, come on. <laughs> but you do get to see, yeah. um, by just seeing what they're, they're saying on the screen, you, you get to figure so out what they're So you're hoping that they didn't cover the math and you could see. Yeah, absolutely. amazing. People speak in the heat of the moment. Yeah, I think you're blessed. Thank you very much. I, I think it's been an incredible um, uh, condition to have. I don't in any way think it's ever held me back. Um, I think yeah, that... It hasn't. It hasn't. But at the same time, there's a lot of people who might think that 
um, having a disability or, or having a condition will hold them back or it has held, held them back in the past. And I'm of the view that, you know, you are your own person and you make yourself to be who you are and there's nothing to stop you except yourself. You know what's amazing? Uh, every person I've interviewed or had this fire chat ch side chat with, they've always been extremely positive people. Have you noticed? They don't allow anything or anybody to defeat them and they, they're, they're winners. They have this just mental attitude that they overcome all objections, all hurdles or rejections, everything, everything. They just overcome them and they have this win-win attitude. I mean, you tell me, I mean, I, I'm interested because you've met so many of these people. I mean, is it something that people can be born with? Well, I had this conversation. I said, I think it was yesterday, I think I had a conversation. I said, I'm not sure if it's in your DNA. And the lady was saying that um, she does generic, 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 generic. It's in your genes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she was saying that uh, sometimes it skips a generation. It could be in the DNA of your grandparents and you... You might not even know them, but it's in your DNA, and it's in your subconscious mind. Um, just the way you look at, you look like your grandparents or parents, you could actually inherit the way they were, the positivity and so forth. Because when I spoke to the ladies, they, they had a tough life. They didn't have a life where the parents were entrepreneurs or anything. Mm. Um, but then they were both entrepreneurs with a very positive attitude towards life. Incredible. Yeah, I because I shared my story. I said my life was tough, really, really tough, and wasn't surrounded with positivity or certainly no entrepreneurs. But something inside me just wanted to break out and, and not be defeated. I couldn't wait to be old enough to leave home. So well, I mean, I, I, I want to share a story about just Please. how I've heard you speaking, if you don't mind, because sure. I think that it, I heard you speaking at a recent seminar, and I saw the amount of positivity you instilled in the audience by simply conveying how strong you'd been during times of adversity, um, how you kept riding over all the problems that, it came, that had come your way. And I think people saw that and they realized they could do the same thing as well. And I, I see that in a lot, of, a lot of people I speak to as well, um, hearing about their stories. And I realized actually that sometimes all a person needs is a guiding light in their life. Uh, someone who can actually share a positive story or share a story of adversity and how they've overcome that. And suddenly it just inspires people. Um, and I think that a lot, of, a lot of us need to go out there and start evangelizing that message more. I think the magic is for people to get inspired and keep that inspiration. Because so many people go on courses, go, yeah, 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 and then last about two days. And then they go down again and they go into the same grinding every single day, getting the salary, four-week four week, uh, year holidays, and that's, that's, all, that's their life, unfortunately. Well, I, I often, um, one of the things I've had to accept over the, um, over the years is that I've led teams, um, and I've led teams and have developed high-performing teams uh, in the course of doing that. One of the most powerful lessons I've had to learn is that some people are just destined to achieve what they are destined to achieve, and the standard that you set for them might be too high for them to achieve. Um, it's not that they're bad people, it's not that they... Um, don't want to achieve, it's just that everyone has their limits. Um, when I was in London once, I, um, there, there's this huge expat population uh, in London and one of the people I, I, I was introduced to at my workplace was an Australian lady um, who was a similar age to me, she was in her late 20s as was I. Um, she'd come over from Australia and she and I talked about our daily routine and I began telling her about my, my routine, waking up early in the morning, going to the gym, taking a walk to work, so on and so forth. 
And she said, oh, well, that's great. Well, I just, um, she said to me, I just get up in the morning and I just go to the office. And when I come back from the office, all I do is just watch TV. Um, and that seemed to me such a waste of time. Um, but to her, was, but she was happy. She was happy. She was and then I realized she was absolutely happy just coming home and watching TV. That was what made her happy in the evening. So despite how well qualified she was and how far she'd come uh, geographically and in her professional life, that was her, her routine that made her happy. Interesting you say that because what I notice is that obviously I'm, when I'm talking and I'm very hyper and get excited and, and people get inspired and they join my cause, right? Mm -hmm. And then three months down the line, they realize what the hell am I doing here? This is not where I want to be because they're well outside their comfort zone. And the truth is they really didn't want to leave their comfort zone. They just got inspired, jumped out, and they realized, actually, this shit is really hard work. I don't need this. And they become resentful. So, yeah, they become resentful. And, and I'm thinking, what happened? I, I'm just the guy I was three months ago, right? But they got out of, you know, they say, you can take a man out of the ghetto, but you can't get a ghetto out of the man. So they, they were comfortable where they were. I just inspired them to get out, but that, they, they didn't really want to. Does that make sense? It does. They didn't really want to. They just got excited. Well, but, I think all yeah. the, my, one of my most favorite quotes I've read is that all progress takes place outside of the comfort zone. And I think that is a lesson that I have learned to apply and to try and instill in others as well. You know, that example you just gave it, Okay, so you might take people out of their comfort zone and they might then retreat back into their comfort zone after your course. But who's to say in a couple of years' time they might just wake up and have that moment of realisation that Darius was right and what he said was the way I should be going and then take it from there. So you might not see the results. I agree. But it they may might happen years ahead. I totally, I've been on courses when I thought it hasn't affected my life but then five, six years later I'm thinking actually I just reacted to that situation because of the course I went through five years ago. Ditto. And I, I think that's a lesson for everyone. But what I've learned is not to take anybody out unless they really want to come out. If you take somebody out, they're not ready. It's not their time. Let's let them be happy. Let them where they are. If they want to come and they, they're prepared to qualify themselves and they say they want it badly enough, then they're in. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So you came to Dubai. Why? I came to Dubai because I... Sorry. No, you well, got your degree in... Internet engineering. engineering right? So what happened was that I was very fortunate um, that when I joined British Telecom, um, BT as it's called, uh, the commercial department working at BT said that they'd like to see me joining it. You had nothing with legal at the time? Sorry? Nothing to do with legal. Nothing, nothing to do with it. Right. Just commercial, there was a commercial management department that was partly staffed by commercial managers, partly staffed by lawyers. The commercial department said, look, we'd like to go through your grad we'd like to see you go through your graduate programme and at the end of that two year graduate scheme we'd like you to join our department. Irrespective of the way of what who else talks to you, we want you to join our department. So straight away they said So you so you're quite smart then? According to them I was. <laughs> they, they, I, 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 I got a bit cocky because at my very, very last interview that I went to um, at BT, um, I'd gone through several rounds of assessments and interviews and then at the very last meeting I met a commercial manager called Paul. Um, who was one of the inspirational guys in my career who gave me a leg up into that organisation. And I'd gone all the way out from outside of London to a, a town outside of London to, for that interview, and he said to me, the first question he said to me was, do you know why you're here? And I looked him straight in the eye and I said, you're here to offer me a job, aren't you? And he went, yeah, that's a really cocky answer, but you're right, we are. Yeah, um, and it just went from there, because I knew that having gone that far, um, there was something there at the end of the line for me. How many interviews did you have? Uh, that stage, so I must have had about five interviews just getting yeah, to that I stage. Was, I, I was interviewed by Phones For You, 
as one of the area sales managers, six or seven interviews, but I was in a job at the time. And I had to get time off to go all the way to Stoke to be interviewed. The sixth time I said, oh, come on now. So you just failed. Yeah, oh. I said, well, I've taken six days off work to come for interviews, you know, I'm not even sure I'm gonna get it or not. Give me some indication. He said, no, you just failed because that was your second to last interview. Seven interviews that are supposed oh, to be. I mean, it, it, it's quite soul-destroying when people have gone through that process and generally told at the end, you failed. But sometimes they don't even let you know. We'll keep your name on file. I, at I, this particular, good luck in the future, and we'll keep your name on file. I'm like, please just tell it to me straight. Why did I fail? Be honest with me. I agree. In I, our company, we phone people within an hour of the interview and tell them why they got the job or they didn't. That's really good. We, want, we respect their time. We want to be different. The companies be unique. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you were in the... Uh, so commercial department of and commercial BT. department taught me about how to be a good negotiator and they taught me about how to get the best deal for my company when meeting with suppliers and customers and business partners and they taught me what to fight for and what not to fight for and they taught me how to be professional uh, they taught me how to present myself um, and it wasn't until a couple of years later when I'd gone through um, a number of really large transactions, uh, the, lawyer, the lawyers in that department started looking at me. Was this all this internet? Was it all internet based, these large transactions? What was it? Was it telephoning? Was so it a lot of it, It's a very good question. So a lot of it, okay, so when the, the phrase that we use in today's world to describe that, those kinds of transactions is called digital transformation. And 15 years ago, that meant taking legacy networks that were based on copper and analog systems and um, switch-based technology and converting them into digital um, technology, doing something different completely, outsourcing technology to um, call centers in India, um, taking processes and shrinking processes with a hundred stages and down into ten stages just to get the end result because you've got so much more computing power in your hand. And it needed someone who could think big when you went to meet a potential customer or supplier and, and tell them, with our technology you can achieve so much more so much more but this is the contract you need to sign before you can get access to that technology so we were always dangling a carrot in front of them and a stick to get them there was our contract. Was BT a monopoly at that time? BT wasn't a monopoly we were competing against some really really wow. powerful companies so we were competing against Vodafone, Cable and Wireless, um, a number of the uh, broadband providers uh, in, the, in the UK started building their own fibre networks um, and we were competing with absolutely huge giants. For example, in, in the US, I was competing with AT&T uh, just to, to win business with some of the content distribution houses in the US. Um, so you had to be at the top of your game at every single transaction. You had to know exactly what to anticipate from your customers. Was there a team of you or were you on your own? A lot of when the time I was on my own. No. I was a sole negotiating multi-million dollar deals. Absolutely. Um. I mean, it, it was, so basically, what, what the, the great thing about where I worked is that the company empowered people with good teams to support you. So you had a good technical team to back, it, back you up if you needed. You had good project managers on standby to tell you how a project was going to be delivered. You had a good supervisory level from a senior commercial manager or senior lawyer who you can tap into whenever you needed help. So it never, I never felt that I was actually on my own, despite standing there in front of the customer on my own. I always felt I had a good support network around me. If you needed them, they were there for you. I needed them and they were there for me. And it, after a few years of doing that, um, some of the lawyers in my department started taking note and they said, you know, you've done really, really well here. You know, we think that you ought to step up and study law and hopefully become a solicitor, which is the term for a lawyer in England and Wales. And that was my first introduction to the legal industry. I had no idea that that career... And you found it exciting? You left the internet to become a lawyer? 
I left internet engineering to become a lawyer. I left commercial management to become a lawyer. I gave up a number of... Was it a good move? Well, let, let me tell you how much the sacrifice was worth. I turned down a number of promotional job offers at when I was still working at BT, um, where I'd be earning double what I was earning back exactly. at the stage of accepting an offer to study law. Um, I'd um, taken effectively taken a pay cut um, just to get in and actually start studying at the bottom level of being. So you were solicitor. working, you were studying. I was working full time. I was studying part time. I went to night school for four years, um, two nights a week, uh, on Mondays and Wednesdays. Um, and then I was studying for a good 16 hours every week on top of that as well, just to make up the, the study time to, to actually close out all the material and the assignments I had to study. Uh, was this funded by BT? Did they well, sponsor? BT were brilliant. So there was um, a supervisory lawyer that I had who was a gentleman I'd like to name called Miles Jobling. Um, and he was an absolute inspiration to me because he gave me the opportunity to study law by creating a budget for me to study law. And he opened up opportunities for me to train um, at BT. Um, and he, he kept pushing me and saying, you know, you've got to make sure you get through the course. We're going to put you onto very, very difficult assignments at work to make sure that you get the achievements and the, um, the experience that you're going to need to qualify as a solicitor. And we're not going to stop putting that pressure on you. We're going to keep that pressure on you. And you're going to have to perform as if you were a lawyer, um, even though you're only a trainee. And I, I, I felt that was an incredible journey to be on. So I had to make sure I, get through, I got through that course. And then it. was there a clause that after you became a lawyer, you had to stay there for several years or no? No, well, what happens in, in England and Wales, what happens is that you have to, first of all, study a law degree. You then have to go and study a postgraduate co course called a legal practice course for a further two years if you do that part time. So six years of your life. Study. Six years. And then, only then, you have to then become a trainee solicitor. You can't just get a degree and call yourself a lawyer. You've got to go out and do vocational training. It's extremely hard. And that's one of the reasons why English lawyers are so highly regarded around the world because of the level of training they have to go through just to get that title of being a solicitor. Yes. Um, and it taught me a lot of uh, humility going through that route because I was going into a profession where it was so difficult for others to break into that profession and I'd been given a leg up. I wasn't going to waste this opportunity. I was going to make sure I saw it through and bring up as many people as I could with me as well. So you were a BT, must have been at least six years, right? I was there for nine years in total. Mm. And I, I, I have to say that before I, um, before I left BT, um, I'd worked in nearly every line of business that they had. I'd seen the company go from peak to troughs, uh, back up to peak again. I'd seen inspirational leaders come and go. I'd managed to attend um, a number of senior management meetings. I, I, I even met um, BT's CEO as well, uh, because the company had an open door policy, meaning someone right at the bottom of the hierarchy could go in and, could go in and talk to the CEO yes. if they wish. And the CEO gave me half an hour of his time to give me some really good business advice. Um, and like I, well, your P45 is waiting. Your P45 is yeah. waiting. This is how to, to pass the next interview. The, the, the next one, I'll tell you what Ben, ben Vervain said to me when he was a CEO. And he shared, that he shared this lesson with a number of um, graduates. He said, you're going to need to leave BT and come back in a few years' time. He said, we've got too many people in our organization here and we don't have enough work to make sure that we can push you up the ranks as quickly as possible. We want you to leave at some, at some point and come back in the future. And to have a CEO telling you that after the company has invested thousands and thousands of pounds in your education and your professional training, and he's saying, go, fly your wings, spread your wings and go out, achieve really amazing things and then come back to us. And that was a lesson I learned from BT. But you never went back? I, I, I would never say no to them. I would never say no to them. I've still got a lot of friends who are still working Even there. now, you would, if they came back, you'd consider it? Absolutely. No. 
they've given me so much in life, I could not turn down an offer from them if they came back to me and said we'd like to come back and join us. I'll give you a better offer. Well, it's, it's a free market, as I say, but at the same time, I'd still give them a, a lot of time and attention. Sure. And I think that that in itself is a quality that I've um, been very proud of because it instills a sense of loyalty, um, it, it reflects my values of being humble and not forgetting where you come from. Wow, so it was a sad day when you left. It was a very sad day. Um, a lot of the people at the company were um, very... Uh, it, it, it was a very sad day. A lot of people said to me, you know, we really, really do want you to come back at some point, but we can see that you've got a much better offer to go to Dubai. Nine years. Oh, so you came straight from uh, BT to here. BT. Wow. So, um, so Dubai, Dubai came calling. Before we go into Dubai, I've got some other questions to ask. Go for it. Internet. You might not, the, not know the answer. I don't know. I kind of get that internet is computers talking to each other, right? And sharing information, correct? Is that correct? That's correct. Whether we use Wi-Fi, cable, whatever it is. How come only so many companies can be hosting? How come only GoDaddy, for instance, can get domain? How come, how come you and I can't open up a, a, a domain name company tomorrow? What does it take? When did GoDaddy become so successful? How come we have to go to them to get the the domain name. Who gave them the right to do that? Am I, am I making sense? Like you are going all the way to the <coughs> top of the internet chain. Well, why do I need to go to them? Why can't I do it myself? It's a very good question. I, I think that what you need to look at is the history of the the World Wide Web. Yes. And I'm going to use the term the World Wide Web because it is a very old term now, but it's what the internet was based on, and it's still based on that same technology. There was a domain name registrar. Uh, in the U US, it still exists, called ICANN. And they were the, the body that controlled the domain names um, that could be issued and the rules for machine domain names. And then what they then did is they branched out after .com was created into creating what's called subdomains, um, where you could have a, a domain that was linked to a particular country. And then what they've recently done is that they've branched out again and they've created more domains for subject matters. So it's a US company? US company. So it's all US driven. Mm. So somewhere along the way, an entrepreneur who owns GoDaddy went to them and said, hang on a second, I, I like to trade domain names, right? Indeed. But I don't have to go to GoDaddy, I can go to anybody who has a license? Well, if you can go to, you can go to ICANN and request permission from them to resell domain names. What does it um, take to do that? You know? Well, we'd have to look at that, but I think it's, it's a really, really interesting uh, business to be in because it's, it's certainly an industry that is ripe for disruption. Sure. Because if you look at any domain name registrar website anywhere in the world, it's got exactly the same format. You just type in a domain name and out pops potential domain names that you can buy for a particular subscription for year for year. Um, and that's all it's ever been. Um, and there's, there's nothing to stop people from actually thinking, well, hang on a minute. I could make a lot of money out of this domain name, um, but I really don't know which domain names are going to be popular in the future. So why not use artificial intelligence? predict which domain names are going to be popular and start buying up those domain names now so that you're effectively uh, mining domain names which has been in uh, an industry for many many years but doing it with a level of sophistication so that you can you can actually tie in the type of domain names you're buying with the the keywords that are likely to be very popular in the future huge potential sorry huge potential absolutely any and this is this is a this is the thing that I want to encourage your listeners to think about and believe is that just because something is done in a certain doesn't way doesn't mean it's stopped. Absolutely. 
it can change, it can develop. There are different ways of doing things nowadays and there are different ways of actually creating opportunities for new businesses to be formed, different industries that they can serve, different technologies that can be leveraged, different types of intelligence that can be brought into business. And it's all available now. One of the things I've um, taken away from being in Dubai is that I went to um, a conference earlier this year that was organized by the Dubai government called um, AI Futures. And I was invited to attend as a delegate. Um, and one of the best quotes I saw coming out of it was a, um, an introduction uh, to artificial intelligence. And instead of seeing the marketing that was going into that at the very state, first, start of the, uh, first day of the conference, and a quote popped up on the screen which said, a lot of people think that AI is the future. Full stop. It's here now. And they were absolutely spot on. It's not the future. AI is actually here. You can buy technology, software, and services that are based Where on artificial intelligence. It all depends on how to actually, what, where, what kind of services you want to buy. Well, you Google it and it's there? You Google it. Well, Google is artificial intelligence at the very core of what it does. It wants to predict what you're looking for. It wants to predict what you might be looking for based on what you've looked for in the past and based on your profile. I know Google do that, right? I, know, I went to a recent conference in San Francisco and they can predict. It's amazing what they can do. Like, for instance, at the moment, if I want to go on a holiday, I'll go to booking.com, look at the hotels, go to Emirates Airlines, check my flights. Then I go and independently look at the hotels to see if they've got family rooms, are they on the beach, they this. So I've got four or five different sites opening, right? But Google can actually monitor the way you're searching. So next time you go, you'll find you family hotels on the beach that Emirates Airlines flight direct. Absolutely. And like, it's, it's so good. It's so good at predicting what you might be looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that tends to worry a lot of people because they think, well, Google is watching me. And that's a common phrase that people use. Um, it's, it's, it's big brother technology. Uh, it's technology that's monitoring my very uh, daily life. Um, and I, to a certain extent, agree with them. But I also like to sell the, the benefits of that type of technology, technology in terms of making people realize, well, there are trillions and trillions of websites out there nowadays how would you even know where to start looking exactly Google's there to help you to find out information. I think the fear is the unknown and also the fact that if the computers are really smart and they can they, they're going to start thinking why do we need humans that's Cla- the, true they're like they pollute the earth they suck up the oxygen they kill the plants they're actually really destroying the, uh, the nature so let's kill off the humans and have a better world and this is what let chimpanzees run well, well, this is what people are worried about nowadays. People are saying, well, weapons c- should continue to be developed, but they shouldn't be necessarily linked to artificial intelligence. Because, gosh, I mean, how would an artificial intelligence system counteract a threat like human behavior? Yeah, and then exactly. we start talking about what that tweets from you know who, and then suddenly we got rockets launched from Russia or China or something because somebody said, you know, the Chinese are screwing us. And all of a sudden you've got World War Three. It's a scary yeah. thought. But then a number of very, very famous entrepreneurs and business people have actually signed open letters in the past. Elon Musk, is it? Elon Musk, led right. by him. So Elon Musk from Tesla, I think Bill Gates might have done it as well, um, and they've all signed open letters saying that weapons sh- weapons uh, should never be developed with yeah. artificial intelligence wow. built into them. They, sh- they should never be used in that kind of way because you just don't know where it's going to lead to. And I agree with them because I think that weapons are a bad thing, of course. Um, I think that war is unfortunately a... a a byproduct of today's world. Um, it's business. It's business, unfortunately. And you know, people think that you have to fight wars with weapons or cyber warfare 
Um, and gosh, you know, it is part of our lives nowadays. Um, Do you know the way I see things, trying to simplify things, as a this guy with dyslexia, that it's mob rule, in my opinion. I think, you know, the triads go in and say, right, you pay me to protect your shop this amount of money, and I'll make sure nobody else will come and rob you. Right? You just multiply into countries. Mm-hmm. You buy my this, you give me contracts, and I'll make sure nobody attacks you. Well, defence is a very important part of today's world, and I think that a lot of people from the, um, the liberal side of politics believe that if you bind nations together by trade and good relationships, you've got a chance of avoiding conflict and exactly. avoiding war. And I think I agree with that as well. I think that the more people realise how interdependent we are on each other as, as, as nations and as communities, the less likely we are to fight. But unfortunately, the money, the power behind weapons manufacturers, gun manufacturers... Uh, alcohol companies, tobacco companies, they're not serving the human race, but it's really powerful. They won't allow positive trade to fix the world, right? Well, hopefully one of those days we'll, we'll look back and we'll think there's a better way of trading and there's a better way of doing business. I, I think our kids, I think our kids. It was really interesting. I was looking at this um, documentary, watching this documentary, and 14-year-olds who were devastated that Donald Trump got in are in a position to vote next year. Incredible. Isn't it? So they they watched their older generation screw it all up. And they're going to come in and they're concerned about the environment. They're concerned about, you know, how how we're ruining their future. Well, I I think that the, the, the most amazing thing I've seen over the last year is just a complete about turn on the issue of climate change. And people are taking it, taking it so much more seriously now. Uh, than I've ever seen in the past. Uh, The focus on reducing plastics, the focus on reducing waste, the focus on reusing things, the focus on actually using hybrid technologies or clean fuels uh, is incredible. And I'm so proud of humanity today that I'm seeing that now happening and actually being put into effect. You know what? Screw us. It's for our kids, right? Everyone wants to leave a better world for their children than when they inherited it, right? Right, right. Not everyone, but most. <laughs> Not the ones without kids, right? They don't give a shit. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that people can... I mean, look, we're all stewards of the world. And I think that lo- you don't have to have children to know how to leave the world in a better place. Sure. Uh, I think a lot of it's down to compassion and humility. I think that's what, it's, what it comes down to. And I don't think you learn that from actually having children. I think you learn that from being a good person. So the more good people there are in the world, uh, the more likely the world is going to be a better place when, um, when it uh, evolves. Amazing. Indeed. Thank you. You're welcome. You came to Dubai. Who offered you a job here? I, offer, I got offered a job by Do, um, the second largest uh, telecommunications company in the UAE at the time, still is. Um, and I was offered a, an incredible opportunity to become a regulatory lawyer, helping to shape regulatory policy um, and helping to build new products and services out into the UAE um, for, you know, for the, for the population at large. So they were trading at the time, right? Or was it, I remember coming here about 11 years ago and they were saying this company called Do's coming out and you can reserve your number. What number do you want? Um, it was yeah. like 056 numbers, 05 whatever numbers. It, um, it was a complete change, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, the... At what stage did you come in? I came in, so at the stage I came in, Do had been operating for about five years. Okay. And it had gone through incredible an incredible level of growth and it's still growing and the the company had some amazing people working for it um, and people I drew so much inspiration from yes um, 
the one of the guys I used to work with was the first person in the UAE to be given a sample of Google Glasses, those wearable yes, um, yes, glasses yes, that yes, yes, project yes. images yeah. onto your face. Yeah. And it was fascinating just being in, in an elevator with him, just seeing him using it and just seeing how amazing it was in terms of the technology and the concepts. And it was Why did you stop them? It was too ahead of its time. Um, I think that the problem that we, I think the problem Google had is that you're going to build wearable technology. So you need two ingredients for that. Number one is you need people to actually buy that technology. And they're only going to then buy it if they have the second ingredient, which is apps. Mm-hmm. And the ability to actually gain information yes. from that through a new interface. And I think it was too ahead of its time uh, to take on as a concept. Because they're talking about putting in contact lenses now. Why not? Why not? I mean, that kind of technology is here now. It's just about getting people to adopt it. Crazy. Isn't it? I mean, I, I saw people projecting... Um, the screens of their mobile phones onto their arms and then using a finger to control that on their, their arms as if it was scrolling through the content on there and it's absolutely incredible absolutely incredible just, it's just about what's popular nowadays and what could be done wow. so the days I think the days of people using mobile phones and using smartphones is now outnumbered I think in the next, in the next few years we're going to see wearable devices as we're now seeing becoming so much more powerful that they start replacing mobile phones as a primary means of communication you know Stephen Hawking's Yes, he he spoke through his mind, didn't he, or something? Uh, somehow he spoke through a system, right? And it had this. How did the hell? Do you know how that worked? Well, Professor Hawking had a um, a very specially adapted chair um, and a computer, and I don't actually know too much about how it actually yes. worked. But what has what has impressed me about the way he lived his life is just how afflicted he was by his condition, but at the same time, how much he changed the world. Um, and you you. you you saw him in conferences and exhibitions uh, and and at seminars, and people would crowd around to listen to what he had to say, yeah. um, despite the fact he was um, limited by his vocabulary. Well, I couldn't understand how his vocabulary came through the, the, the actual computer. That was amazing. It was, but I, just, I don't it know. It was through voice. It was mind or something? I really don't know how he did it. I really yeah. don't. I'd love to know, actually, now you've mentioned it, actually. Cause it, I'd love to know, because be, then, like, if you're thinking, right, I'm thinking something, and the phone dials it. <laughs> See, oh. But that's the thing. See that that the thing that's impressed me about that curiosity. That curiosity drives people to want to find out how to do this better. Yes, they it's the questions you ask yourself. Isn't Indeed. It? Indeed. I think I think we need to be curious in this world. I think we want we need to find out how things work. Um, one of the things that I would um, I wanted to say is that my my background in engineering taught me how to be curious. See, I'm the worst person to go out with into a restaurant or out onto the street or into the car because what I do is I see things and how they work the and I want to know how they work everything, exactly. right. and it annoys it annoys my wife so much because I'm constantly asking questions as to how do they do that and she's like look I know you really want to know but we've got to, we've got to move on we've got to get yeah, to we've got babysitters waiting we've got, yeah, we've, got, yeah. we've got the babysitter waiting we've got to get play day we've got to get to a meeting with friends or, and then I go into these um, I go to meet friends in a restaurant and I'm still talking about how things are done Wow. I still want to know how these app, apps were built and how someone got from A to B and how someone developed their career. I think my friends must think I'm absolutely frustrated. Let's look into Stephen Hawking's. Let's do that, actually. Let's find out yeah, how, find how out. the hell he got that computer. Yeah, let's work. do that. I, and I think that, that, that curiosity, as I said, is if people can remain curious, it provides lifelong learning. Yes. And as long as people remain curious, I've always got time for them. And because of that, the human race is a good future. Very much so. Because we're constantly looking for solutions, not focusing on problems. Yeah. So, do how long were you there? So I was at Do for um, two and a half years. 
people would say that's extraordinarily short. I don't think so, um, because um, the achievements that we made as a team working at DO in the, the regulatory affairs department, um, the leadership um, that I saw from a new incoming VP who I worked with called Tariq Hadwari was absolutely fantastic. Local gentleman. Um, he was an Emirati gentleman. Wow. And one of the most inspirational leaders I've wow. ever worked for. Um, he was, his claim to fame was that he used to work for the infrastructure team at DO. Um, and at the time the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building, was built, Do and Etisalat were invited to wire up the Burj Khalifa with internet fibre. And it became a race to the top, literally. And Tarek's team were the first people from Do to achieve that. They beat Etisalat, the number one operator in the UAE. So there's cables from both companies in the, in the building? There are. There are. Because a building of that size is equivalent, you've got the built-up area the size of a very, very um, a, a district, effectively, yeah. uh, an entire community, and you've got so much floor space and so much infrastructure that you need to invite as many people as you can. To put Did they give them. like one half to Etisalat, one half to do? Uh, as, as far as I'm aware, they've got equal rights to share yeah. from the ground up, wow. um, so you can go into the building if you buy an apartment and select do or Etisalat as your operator. Etisalat is UAE owned, do is UAE. Dubai holdings, right? Do is Dubai. They are, so they're, they're primarily owned by the Dubai government, but there is a common shareholder called the Emirates Investment Authority that owns uh, shares in both operators as well, to make sure that it's owned. I mean, it, it's one of the success stories of the UAE, just seeing how they've managed to build out infra- infrastructure into the whole country. So quickly. Um, and, you know, the, uh, the, the, the most amazing statistic I know about in terms of the UAE is just the number of smartphones that people hold. The, on yes. average, it's, something like, it's, it's, it's over two phones per person. That's just incredible. All credit to Sheikh Mohammed because I think to build Jumeirah, to build Emirates Airlines, to build Do, it's all about recruiting the right people, right? I think so, and I think, it's, but I think more so the vision. It's about saying to people, "Look, we've got to build a country." And then recruiting country. a purple to people to and deliver the vision. Indeed, and you need big thinkers. And I think a lot of the success stories of the UAE have come from the the Emiratis who are out here because they've gone through life and been told, "Look, we want to build." a world-class country and we want world-class infrastructure we want world-class services we want world-class government services so the sky's the limit here all you've got to do is make sure you build the best of what you can and these emiratis that don't mention names do they have the right work ethics that they were there before nine o'clock and left late the ones that i worked with did Mm -hmm. and they were fantastic to work with because they were they were of such high caliber um, because they'd gone through a number of recruitment rounds to get their jobs. They were so proud about having those roles and responsibilities. And I think people then realised when we worked with, um, when I worked in, 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 a, in an Emirati, uh, an Emirati population of people, the, the strength of the values that they hold came through so well. Um, the, the country's values, um, the, country, the, the community's values, um, leaders values, family values yeah. they, they brought that right into the workplace and it made it such an amazing place to work because everyone was so respectful about each other um, we celebrated each other's achievements we celebrated family achievements um, and I've realised that actually it created a completely different work ethic than what I'd ever been used to and it was more family orientated um, which made it such an amazing place to work and yet driven very driven, driven. and, and that, that pride and ambition that they held and they continue to hold is absolutely unique absolutely unique it's not it's not arrogance it's not a belief that they're better than other people it's a belief and a, a to uh, do better to get to give the absolute mm-hmm. best for their country and I think that's the lesson we all need to learn we have Amazing. to be proud of what they've done and, and I'm very proud of that as well 
Yeah, we live in an incredible city. Sometimes we just forget. We, we've been blinded by Dubai. Yeah. People I can't go anywhere else. Well, Whenever I go, even I go to US, I'm like, this is not as good as Dubai. No. I mean, the, I mean Dubai, mm -hmm. people fly in around the world. People fly in around the world just to see Dubai. And we live here. And we're so lucky exactly. to see that innovation and that pace of change. Just get used to it. It's incredible. So you left because you got the most unbelievable offer. I got a very good offer to, to become uh, what was then a legal manager, which turned into becoming a regional general counsel. I worked for a company called Agreco, who were the world leaders in temporary power uh, provision and uh, cooling. Um, and they effectively gave me a blank sheet of paper and they said, we'd like you to establish a regional legal department. And this was an opportunity for me that was too good to be true and it was too good to turn down. So I, I, um, I handed my notice in at due and I went over to Agreco. And I spent four, four and a half years, nearly five years working wow. at Coeco, building that legal department and constantly, constantly pushing people to do more for less. Because You're still in your 30s now. I'm in yeah. my 30s. I'm 38 now at the That's time of recording this. But so much in such a young age. Well, I, I just feel that I have to keep pushing myself to achieve. And I needed to make sure that I bring as many people into that journey with me as well. I don't want to leave people behind. I want to make sure that I, when I work with teams, I want to make sure that I'm developing them, improving capability, improving knowledge and know-how, so that when I leave and move on to something else, I've imparted that knowledge and those opportunities into That's people. Amazing. I have to do it. Yeah, before the microphones went on, you and I discussed being a lawyer. Oh yeah, we did. Yes, tell me. Why lawyer? Why law? Why? Well, know? law and the knowledge of the law is something that anyone can, I think, read about. I don't think you need to be a lawyer to understand the, lo the law. But being a lawyer gives you the opportunity to change people's lives. It really does. Everything you say, the advice you give, um, the way you act around people, the, the, um, the hope and the ambition that you give to people, by having someone like a lawyer giving that to you is something I've never um, uh, been able to replicate in any other career that I've worked in. And I think that that is something that I'm so passionate about about making sure that I use the title of, that I've been um, uh, bestowed uh, as a lawyer to help improve people's lives. Wow. And it, it really, really, really matters to me. I want to make sure that I'm helping people to improve um, the way that they're doing business, um, helping them solve personal, personal problems, helping them to build um, a good framework and maximize the opportunities with the, uh, within their lives, within the confines of the law, uh, to help them achieve as much as they can. What I find, because you're my lawyer, what I find uh, different with you uh, is that you're actually like a normal person. We can have a laugh, we can have a joke. I've never had that with my lawyers in the past, right? And you see it for what it is. It's just no airs and graces and no bullshit. It's just like straight to the point and you're not trying to drag it so you screw me on your hourly rate. And I'm, I'm saying it from the heart. It's not an advertising for you. I really say it from the heart, and, and you know, because of that, I want to, you to become my partner. Thank you very much, I really yeah. appreciate that. I think that I take a lot of the feedback on board um, with a great deal of humility and um, pride as well. And the reason for that is that over the years, I've met with amazing people um, who have either been lawyers or are not lawyers, but um, you know, know how to conduct themselves. And the one thing I've realized is that there is no place for arrogance um, and pig-headedness and, um, and disdain for other people. Those are negative qualities which I don't want to ever be associated with and I've never wanted to be associated with. 
Um, you're not the first person to tell me that I've never acted or behaved like a lawyer. Um, I still have the same ethical high, you know, standards as a lawyer might have, but I want to talk to people on the level and I want to give advice and uh, knowledge and input as a person rather than as I actually look forward to you coming to the office. Well, thank you. I've never had that before with a lawyer. I'm like, oh, good God, the lawyer's here. Yeah. yeah, but with you, I'm like, I can't wait for you to come in. Well, I think we always have interesting chats, and I think a lot of the, the reasons why we work so well together is because we're very open about how to exchange ideas and how to solve problems. And the good thing I like about you, and I, I, I say this about good clients, is that they're willing to challenge me. And that's a very important point for a client when they're instructing a lawyer. They need to be able to challenge that lawyer. And they, know they need to look and past... And you, you have this need for growth. So you study, you grow, you learn, and then you answer. Exactly. You solutions. Exactly. And I, I just think that clients need to look past that facade of being a lawyer. They need to drill down into the person that they're speaking to and actually really challenge what they know. Because yeah. lawyers need to stand up on their own two feet. Then there's, the money, there's the money side of lawyers. Well, I know you do pro bono. And please explain that. What, why? I think people... Please explain it. Well, okay, so... And what are your thoughts? What are your feelings about pro bono? Pro bono okay, so for your listeners, pro bono um, is Latin, and it means for the greater good. Yes. And it's used to describe an aspect of legal service where lawyers provide their services for free, uh, yes. at no charge to their clients. Yes. Now, pro bono has always been um, a very strong part of a lawyer's ethics, or work ethics, as I call them, because access to justice is very, very hard for yes. people around the world if you don't have money. And lawyers, by their very right, um, are a self-regulated uh, profession um, who can set their own fees because the principle about independence from the government and the judiciary means that lawyers are independent from being regulated by the government and having so if the uh, clients willing to, to pay their charge, whatever. And that's right, and that's what that's what it then leads to. So a lot of people have been saying over the last few decades is they're saying that look, we've got to do more pro bono work to increase access to justice. There will be people in our population and our communities who cannot afford to pay for legal advice, mm -hmm. and we need to provide that off that service for free because it's fair and it, it, it's a byproduct of our industry being. So, is this something self. that you approach law firms with, with the idea, or do people well, shut the door in your face saying, "Screw you, I want to make money"? No, no, that's 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 the thing. So, um, there are incredible law firms out there who devote thousands and thousands of, of billable hours towards pro bono work wow. and they just don't charge for it because it's, it's part of their ethos. In fact, one of the things I'm very proud of with US law firms is they publish statistics on how many pro bono hours they, do, they give to the community every year. And there's and no such a thing here, no? There's no such thing and I, I think that they're, they're missing a trick because what's now happened is that the, um, the buyers of legal services in the US, customers, uh, big corporate clients, um, they look at law firms that they want to instruct and look how many pro bono hours that they've given. Wow, because and they use that I guess people don't want to do it because they're thinking they'll attract the wrong clientele. But because they're doing it, the right clientele looks at it as a social responsibility, right? And they, and they like it. It's a form of social wow. responsibility. And, it, and I think that it is so It has an opposite effect. I think it has a complete opposite effect. I think the more pro bono hours a law firm can afford to give, um, within reason, because they're all a body, that law firms are all made uh, for profit, sure. but I think the more pro bono hours they can give to the community, um, the more it helps their lawyers to understand what real problems exist in the world, and it, it helps to remove And what do you suggest? It should be 10% of their time, 50% of their time? There's, there, there isn't really, I, th I think that a lot of people are keen to put numbers on it, and I'm, I'm not keen to put numbers on it, because the reason for that is that some firms are very, very lean 
in the number of fee earners that work there and they are traditionally very lean because they need to maximize the the number of uh, or the amount of profit that they make per per fee earner sure so simply saying that they have to devote 10 to 15 percent of all their time isn't necessarily going to achieve that I think you have to look at how much time they can genuinely give and I think that partners who work at firms they generally understand how much time ought to be devoted back to right. the community because they've come from those communities they know how much time out of the hundred lawyers how many of them do pro bonos I think nearly all of them do actually no yeah, yeah I think all of, I, I, I should go in claiming poverty everywhere I go well I mean they, they they've been charged everywhere <laughs> I think a lot of the, a lot of the lawyers that I work with um, devote large numbers of pro bono hours to helping people um, if you don't mind me saying I, I devoted nearly two and a half hours uh, to pro bono causes just this morning um, receiving and talking to people who had problems with their employment contracts um, and helping them to work through those problems and talking to them about how to, to manage and solve them and I didn't think a single thing about it I just thought right well I'm, I'm gonna help people to solve their problems you actually that's how our relationship started you helped me didn't you with the local partner oh. issue we had well, we you advised me and it was unconditional. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that see, the thing is about the trust that people need to have in lawyers is that lawyers um, are entitled to charge for their time. But there is nothing worse than having any professional who's entitled to charge for their time saying, right, the minute you start talking to me, I'm going to put the clock on. And at the end of that, I'm going to send you a bill. There's no point in doing that because what trust is that going to build? Sure. And how are you ever going to get an idea? Honestly, do you know who's good at that? Marriage counsellors. Really? My first marriage, it was like, don't talk now, right, the clock starts now. In the middle of an argument, she said, right, your hour is up, let's leave. I'm like, we're in the middle of an argument. Well, it was exact as the hour. So well, we continued our arguments in the street. I suppose there are certain... <laughs> we divorced. Well, I suppose there are certain arguments where they... Certain, well, certain situations where they probably need to, do, to count that time. Yes. Um, just, yeah. But I, I think that there's a lot to be said for the ability for people to charge for their time. And I think yes. that there's... There's no excuse to say to someone, you know, you shouldn't be able to charge for your time. Everyone's got to make money in the world. Everyone's got to put, put food on a table. Um, but the way I see it is that the more we give time for our friends and family, the more we look them in the eye and say, you know what, I'm going to help you solve this problem. I'm going to be there to back you up. I'm going to be there to make sure that you get through this issue. The more we become a community. Um, we, we act like That's a community I mean, and I think that that is one of the most powerful aspects of humans that we can do that for each other despite how little we know about each other yes the, the stronger we are as a community the stronger we are as yes. a human race as far as I'm concerned very noble of you thank you um, one of the things I've been dying to speak to you something that affected me 10 11 years ago is reputation management I was attacked cyber attacked and uh, these guys were relentless. They followed me on social media. I'll do a post on Facebook with my kids. They'll have a, a mirrored, similar Facebook and they'll post something horrible. It was happening, so I, I stopped posting. My kids were checking websites that they were setting up. Com um, we couldn't find out who they were. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, confidential websites, we couldn't. We couldn't see who was hosting them, who owned them, nothing. It was just horrible. For six months, I noticed my name got tarnished. It hit me business-wise. But I spent a lot of time learning of how to eliminate cyber attacks or internet bullying. So reputation management. So how did you get into that and what made you an expert in this? Well, thank you. Um, so I, I used to work um, for... 
legal teams that either supported clients who wanted to uh, remove malicious or slanderous information about them, um, or I worked on the opposite side of the fence for telecom operators, such as BT, where we worked uh, to actually respond to requests to take down information, um, and we responded to court orders to remove information from the service that we hosted as well. And so I've seen um, the battle being fought on opposite sides. Um, telecoms operators don't want to have to be forced to remove in content because it, they believe it's a burden that they shouldn't have to carry, whereas you've got legitimate people who want to make sure that what's seen and is written is, is true. So the heart of this is really about fairness. It's about making sure that both sides are adequately represented. The, the internet is completely anonymous, in my opinion, and it has um, what's been known as an unforgiving memory. It's impossible for actually people to trace just how much information is being posted about them on the internet. Um, but I think people have to accept that in this day and age we live in, um, that our lives are so public that we've conceded that control of our right to think uh, to be private. Now that's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument is the, the situation that you faced, which is, com which is and was completely unacceptable. No one should be cyberbullied. No one should be trolled. Times of my life. It, yeah, it's so it, my phone. It's the worst form, in my opinion. It's the worst form of bullying I can imagine. Um, people yeah. seeing malicious content posted about them. People having very personal po photographs of them published on the internet that were never meant to be personal. Or that are never meant to be published when they were taken. People having things said about them which are completely untrue. Um, and the worst aspect of this whole thing is that you never know who might be out there looking for information about you because they're trying to conduct legitimate searches yes. about you. Yes. They want to know who you Automatically, are. Automatically, you meet someone, the first thing you do, they check you. You could go to the bathroom and they're checking you online to see if what you're saying is true. And they do. And they it's do. It's automatic now. People are very curious because they know there's so much information out there. Yes. And I, I, I've taken a view that I want to make sure that I can help as many people to overcome this problem and to have information about them which is represented on the internet which is fair and it's accurate and it's not malicious and it's not defamatory um, because people have a right to be represented on the internet in a way which reflects them and if people have done the wrong things in life then obviously that has to, that might have to be reported as well but at the same time the majority of people in this world are good and they're this not is very specialized isn't it not everybody can do this not everybody knows how to do this because a lot of it's about understanding what um, the, the basis of online PR and how it works. Yes. It's about understanding how social media and search engines work. Yes. Uh, it's about understanding how people will publish internet uh, information on the internet yes. and how, that, how it will be then searched for. Yes. And I think you have to be able to think holistically and think, well, as a lawyer, I know that I'm able to advise on 10% of that because I understand the legalities of how media should be published in a particular country. But I've got to think in a very holistic way as if I'm thinking on behalf of the entire internet in terms of how that information is going to be disseminated, um, and where it's going to go, who's going to be accessing it. Thank you. Um, I get it if somebody sets up a domain name, we find out what they are, we can take them down. What if somebody, uh, we're representing a, a worldwide celebrity, and this person has accusations, unfounded accusations, even the people who said that they were victims, the victims have come out and said, no, this didn't happen, right? But there are forums where people are just feeding rubbish about this celebrity, which is totally unfair. Because it's a forum and it, people are talking about millions of other things as well, is it possible 
to actually remove that? The forums themselves... That dialogue in the forum about... Well, the forums that are there on the internet are there to protect people's right to publish information. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that right to publish information comes with responsibility. It comes with a responsibility to make sure the information they're publishing is not false or defamatory. And it certainly comes with a very strong responsibility to make sure it's not there to actually hurt people uh, and to cause people to self-harm themselves. Which is, I think so you contact the, the person who manages the forum and you say, so what, so what, we what do if is they don't care? Well, it's what a free, wall, free speech. So one of the things that comes about knowing about how to manage that type of information is about not um, fanning information like that with the oxygen of publicity. When people find out that the uh, content that they published, which was meant to be defamatory, has been noted by the person they've written, and they find out that someone taken an interest in it, the people, who, the, the trollers, as they're called, or yes, the bullies, correct, correct. will only seek to amplify that and to publish even more information because they know someone's listening and someone's watching and someone's taking notice. Whereas sometimes the best opportunity or the best mm -hmm. way to, to deal with it is just to ignore it. Um, because the good thing about search engines is that they will push search results up which are more relevant to people that are being searched for and clicked on and looked at and read. Mm. And I think people need to recognise that the more good there is about them on the internet, about the good things they've done, about the more positive aspects about how they've helped people, that will go up and, and be noticed by people rather than the negative side of things as yes. well. Interesting. Interesting. If somebody came to you, how, how would somebody approach you and say, listen, I have this problem. Is it too small? Is it too big? Is it too small for you to handle? How do they approach you? Well, the first thing we need to do as, as, as lawyers is to keep an open mind. Um, we need to look at this in terms of thinking, well, who is my client? What type of damage have they experienced? Is it something that we can tackle from a, a legal point of view? Can we ask the courts to get involved? Is it something that we need to be a bit more holistic about in terms of thinking about how to um, make sure that good content about them, which is true and accurate and reflects who they are, gets up on the, onto, the, onto the internet? Um, and what's the best approach of taking uh, and in terms of achieving that? The thing that binds all clients who come to me with these kind of problems is they are just emotionally drained. Yeah, absolutely yeah. emotionally drained I and they've gone through so much stress and seeing that and, and experiencing that emotion from them is something that's very very um, it's not just about them is it? it could be about their family the family sees it they, the whole everyone they know gets affected we had a client here whose mother was affected gosh people were attacking the mother what the hell has that got to do it's just awful yeah. I mean there's so many bad people in this world who just seek to attack family members just mm -hmm. for the, the sake of their family members I and mean, there's no reason for justification to do it and I think that as I think as lawyers and I think as as people who work in PR I think the first thing we have to recognize is that someone is coming to us with one of the toughest problems that they're ever likely to have in their lives yes there's nothing worse than being a victim of you know what bullying. was amazing I contacted my MP in the UK and they came to me and said they had the same problem. They've been stalked. And I said, there's loads of MPs being stalked. They just didn't know how to get rid of it. They were just handling it. And it was well, ruining their lives. And I, think, I, think, I think that politicians and public figures, um, no one deserves to be bullied. Mm. Um, no one, even a private individual um, of, any, of any status, no one deserves to be bullied online. And I think that the... The worst aspect of seeing people bullied is just how much stress it causes, and seeing just how powerless feel they they feel when it happens. And and 
as 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 people who can try to help to solve these problems, the second thing I also do is to try and set expectations. Yes, that was my next question. How long does it normally take to help someone clear their name? It can take well, it can take months, if not years, uh, to get that information reorganized on the internet to make sure that we can create um, profiles for people that accurately reflect who they are um, and and get rid of that tension on um, people publishing. People if you find stuff. out somebody's been lying to you or they hosted something or they put something up, could you sue them? Well, there are certain laws around the world that can be used um, to tackle defamation. Um, you know, if you're Elton John, you can sue somebody for 20 million, so it's damages, right? But if I'm a businessman and nobody knows about me, but what there is is negative lies, how, how do you value that? Well, th um, I think the most important thing is to think about, if I go out and chase someone to, by suing them for defamation, am I really solving the problem? Am I potentially amplifying the problem mm -hmm. by giving that person the satisfaction Ooh, yeah. that they've had an effect on me? And I think a lot of the things I try to counsel clients are um, are not to actually tell them to go after people and not to incur more legal fees necessarily, but to actually help them to manage the public relations aspect of how to deal with that information yes, online. Yes. And it's not easy. No. It's not easy for them and it's not easy for people who are in their friends and uh, family circles because they so, see this. So do you hold their hand through this process? You work with your clients to make Very sure. much so. And you constantly monitor the, 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 the information that's going online worldwide about them, right? Indeed, absolutely. We constantly monitor and we have databases out there. We have tools that can help us to monitor when things pop up on the, inter on the internet. We get into notifications on how to actually deal with that. Um, uh, we, we, we know how to find information on the internet. Is this what you're doing full-time now? Is this is what, what I'm doing. As a, it's part of my consultancy. Um, I so I run a business which focuses on reputation management um, and this is part of the work that I do. That's amazing. That's amazing. I bet you, I bet you, tend to meet some high-ranking officials and business people in this industry, right? I've been very fortunate to be able to do that, and I think that one of the experiences I've had um, in the past was working at the House of Lords. Yes, um, where I was I going to ask you about that. Yeah, tell um, me about that. So I worked. I was extremely fortunate um, to Baroness be Baroness of Scotland. I would. I was working for Baroness Scotland, who was then the former Attorney General and a member of the House of Lords. She's now the um, Secretary General for the Commonwealth. Um, and she in herself, in her own right, is an inspirational leader. Um, and the company she kept um, and the people that she associated with were all very, very good. So when was this? I missed that. You, you were in BT, then you came for do. When did you so what happened was um, there was a period when I was training to become a solicitor. And I was very fortunate to be seconded to work at Baroness Scotland's office in the House of Lords um, and through I suppose that that privilege the opportunity that it presented um, I wanted to make sure that I learned as much as I could about how to conduct myself in the presence of VIPs and politicians the House of Lords in the same building as the Parliament right that's right or just in, down the hallway just literally down the hallway so the House of Lords is a 10 minute walk from the House of Commons. Do you ever bump into the Prime Minister or any famous there were, MPs? Well, and there, there were people that I bumped into who were very notable politicians and celebrities. Yeah. Yes, they were. Um, I'm not going to name names because mm. I, I suppose that would be uh, a breach of their trust in me uh, to keep that secret. But one had to learn how to conduct themselves, I think, when you were in their presence. I think it wasn't, there's no point gawking 
and getting wow. all uh, bashful when you meet a celebrity or someone famous because you're there in the context of business and you're there in the context of public service um, and you're there in the context of helping them to do something and to achieve something and providing a service to them. You're not there to collect autographs or collect photographs. So I never ever asked for autographs. I never you were asked there a couple of years. I'm sorry? You were there a couple of years. I was there for just over four months, okay. um, working pretty much full time from the from nine o'clock in the morning till 10, 10 o'clock in the evening. And how did that make you feel about the politicians? You know, the thing that made me realize, and this was a really big realization for me, is that we had access to television. And what you see, what you saw reported on television was completely different from what you saw yeah. in in a political yeah. establishment. And it, the the thing about the political establishment uh, that I was part of is that you saw good people trying to do good things for the population and the communities around them, but not necessarily reflected correctly in the media. Not necessarily reflected in the media like that. The media is um, unfortunately very adversarial. Um, tend to publish a lot of content designed to get clicks and likes and views um, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the truth True. Um, I would go so far to call them a fake news that it, it's not fake news as Donald Trump describes it it's nowhere near that but I think the, me that the media expresses some a bias in order to make sure that they appeal to their readership which is expected but I think that the people that I worked with um, were far more impartial than I'd ever realised that they would be did they get affected by the news? Like I think everyone did in some way shape or form but I think that the, the thing that I saw the most coming through from them is that tenacity and that courage just to ride over it and say you know what someone says about something Screw bad about me in press just let, let it go and just to move on they can because they were politicians and they were exposed to that on a daily basis did you go to where they sat so um with the red leather i saw that I, I walked into the lord chamber when it wasn't sitting obviously um as part of a tour and i saw the you know, the wall stack where the speaker sits i saw the it's a small place isn't it it's very small place yeah. but then one of the things excuse me <coughs> one of the things that I learned about the um, the chambers of the House of Lords and the House of Commons is that the the chambers themselves are designed to facilitate debate and encourage um, consensus. So, for example, one of the most famous um, aspects, that I, or one of the most interesting aspects of the House of Commons, which has the green leather seats, is that um, the House of Commons had been bombed, I think, um, during the Second World War and uh, the Prime Minister Winston Churchill had been asked to approve the designs for the new House of Commons. So did it damage you that much? Yes, it did. And, oh, and really? I think so it's not the same seats that was like there three, four hundred years ago? Well, this is, this is the interesting fact. So the House of Commons had always been known for being cramped. Yeah. And everyone had been sitting there with no armrest and was feeling very uncomfortable all the time when the House was, the house was sitting. Winston Churchill was asked to approve designs which would improve More comfortable, big would improve it. And he said no. So because when you put people into an environment where there's pressure and they're not feeling comfortable, they're more likely to come to an agreement. So he wanted to make sure to facilitate agreement and consensus from across the house, keeping the original specs and keeping the place really cramped would help people to do that with amount of pressure. But it's not the same in House of Lords, because half of them are either dead or asleep. I wouldn't go so far to say that. <laughs> I, I think I think that the every time I see someone talking, they're like in the background, uh, just dribbling I've, down this. I think I think I've seen, I've I've met the of the Lord's members that I've met. Um, they've all been dedicated Alive. people, and they've Alive. All, and <laughs> they've all been very very dedicated people. They they are people who What's are. What's their responsibility? 
I'm sorry? What's their responsibility? To make sure so, they check up on the on the MPs. That's right. Now well, the MPs are voted, but the Lords are not. They're appointed. So they're appointed. it could be like the US judges, right? It could be all conservative or labor. Is there a balance? There is. So what, so what tends to happen is that in the United Kingdom, we have um, a system of parliament um, where the House of Lords checks the House of Commons's work um, and scrutinizes its work to ensure that legislation being passed is fair and reflective of the, the Lords of the UK and it reflects the, you know, the breadth of issues that need to be considered. One of the constant debates that's always come up is should the House of Lords be elected or not? Mm. And I got exposed to that right at the start when I started working there because it was always in the newspapers, it was always in the press about people talking about should, it be, should they be elected or not. And I also got to meet members of the House of Lords and I saw just how hardworking they are, how collegial they are and how intelligent they it's are. Paid. It's a paid role, is it? It, it? It's not actually a paid role, they're not salaried, but they get paid their expenses if they come in. Um, so they get paid a, a stipend um, right. for travel and food if right. they come in, but it's not a salaried role. And I came to the conclusion, actually, that the House of Lords should not be elected because if you elect members into a supervisory chamber like the House of Lords, you bring in the same political bias that you would from the House of Commons. Um, and we tended to see that when members of the House of Commons, after they finished their careers as MPs, had been given peerages to sit in the House of Lords, and they brought the same political bias. But correct, correct. So a Conservative government could actually bring lots of lords who are conservative, right? That's right, and that's what they do. So a conservative government can do that in the same way that a Labour government can do. So they can swing the way House of Lords votes. That's right. Um, and I think that that's part of the privilege of being in the House of Commons or being in government because you have the ability to award peerages to people who perhaps share the same political... Is it limited to the number of peerages they can give? or is it No, they're, 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 well, there's a, there's a fixed allocation every year as far as I, I, I believe, but... There are also what, what are known as cross-bench peers, people who have no political affiliations whatsoever and sit as independents. And the cross-bench peer is very, very influential within the rules because they can swing one way or another. So there could the be businesses, business owners or something like this? They, ge they generally will be awarded peerages, but they will say to the government at the time, look, I don't want to sit as one of your uh, appointed lords. I'd rather be an independent member. So it's a seating place. Is there for conservatives? There is. Oh. There is. There is. And so, and but it's for life. It's, it's a lifetime sure. appointment. It's a lifetime appointment. And have there been I, many people who've been kicked out? Well, the there are very very strict work, uh, rules on um, declaring income um, as a result of being right. a member of the Lords. There are very strict rules about how their expenses can be used. Mm -hmm. um, peers peers have been um, struck off. Not been struck off, but suspended for having breached those rules. Right. So the standard of conduct that they're expected to adhere to is extremely high. And so there's a department that checks up on this. There is. There is now. The, the thing I want to make clear uh, as in terms of when I was there, and my eyes and my ears saw incredible people, yeah, absolutely incredible people at work, um, working together, you know, trying to form um, opinion and consensus, mm -hmm. having the level and depth of experience that they had from their respective industries that they come from, uh, was actually an incredible privilege to see. And I think a lot of people don't get to see that when um, they, they watch the, the, the media. And I, I want to make it clear that at no point was I ever there to influence opinion. I was merely there to listen, and I was there to um, to try and help um, the office, you know, the office mm -hmm. I work for, to build um, bridges and actually help to pull together legislation and pull together consensus and opinion, which had been decided, and actually presenting that 
um, to people who can then make that happen. So, um, Baroness Scotland, mm -hmm. she had you helping her. This was paid by the government. The expense. No, it was a, it was a her own. It was it was a completely voluntary role. Um, oh really? So, so you never I, got paid. Yeah, I never got paid for this. This, this was specific to the the opportunity that arose, and it's such a prestigious opportunity that there was no uh, financial reward to be made from it. Were you walking in and looking at all the statues, statues of Thatcher and Churchill, and going, "Oh my God, they well, walked here." They well, those those statues exist on the the side of the House of Commons. Um, so you have what's called the central lobby that links both chambers together. And the central lobby has those statues and it's where a lot of these politicians have walked in the past and consensus has been held and, and debates have been held. Um, Standing there in the middle of the... And I'm seeing, I'm seeing the Parliament of the United Kingdom functioning in real time. I'm seeing people going to the chambers to vote. I'm seeing on TV... The Do you see anybody raising their voice or arguing? Well, I don't think that they've raised their voice and argue. Um, they might do so in the, the Commons Chamber, more yes, so than in the House of Lords. I but I, did, I didn't see people arguing. I didn't see people getting... It was civil. It was, it was always civil. Indeed. And I, I respect that. I, I, I think that they came with the tone of the place. I think people wanted to make sure that when they were talking privately and in chambers or in the corridors, that it would seem to be very respectful. And that we, we, you know, uh, we, 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 we were very observant about the fact that people have very entrenched opinions sometimes mm -hmm. and I think you have to learn to respect people's opinions as well and I saw that happening yes. so it was it was an incredible privilege to see and I, I also want to say that the that the employees working at the House of Lords the people who worked in other members offices and the 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 permanent staff in the restaurants and the bars and the the library were equally just as inspiring to speak to as well um, people actually I think that's you to be honest with you if you actually look at your career you only work with inspiring people I see a negative person, I say, I've always worked with bastards, right? So it's, it's you. You're the one who attracts that kind of energy and you'd only see good in people. So that's you. I'll give Thank you credit you. for that. So five years down the line, where do you see yourself? That's a question I ask everyone. Five years down the line, I want to be considered to continue my role as being a dedicated father and a loving husband. That's my main priority. To when my did family. you marry your wife, by the way? I married my wife in, funny enough, in Dubai. I met her you in Dubai and I married her here. So um, it was an absolute privilege um, to have met her and I, I remain the proudest man alive every single day that I wake up. I've got two beautiful children. Um, and Daughter, two and a half? And I've got one daughter and one son, they're twins. Um, oh, wow. and, I didn't um, know they were twins. It's absolutely, absolutely beautiful children and I'm sure that any father would agree that their children are beautiful, um, mine too as well. And so in five years time I want to be known um, for having achieved as much as I could have in the last five years and to be regarded as being the best lawyer of my generation. That's what I want to achieve. Fantastic. And I have no doubt you already are, and you're going to go better and higher and more well-established and better known. God willing. God willing. I, think I was that hoping that you say, you'll be best friends with me, and we've developed our company to be the biggest law firm on the bill. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with achievements like that I as well. I love you, Matt. I love you. But the thing is, it's been absolutely amazing being able to work with you because I think that a lot of the time people don't see the ambition that people have. And I think the thing that I've learned from you is to be open about ambition and to be open about that drive and enthusiasm and that energy because not only does it make people realise who you are as a person, and I see that in you, it rubs up onto other people. And it's maybe more confident about expressing ambition. I think it's I about not giving a shit. Not giving a shit about what other people say. 
honestly. Set it as it is. If they want to embrace it and applaud it, fantastic. And get well, inspired about it, fantastic. But if they don't, and you know, I, I actually do give a shit. If I see somebody who, who has an issue, I do lose sleep and I do think, why? Why are they holding themselves back? I do care. No matter how much I say I don't, I do care. I think it's amazing. I think and one of the, the, the books you probably, and you probably read the same book, it's a book by a guy called Mark Mason. Mm-hmm. And it's got, a, an explicit, it's got an explicit in the title. So I'm not going to say that, but it's how not to give an F. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yes, yes, yes. One of the best books I've really? ever come across. It's got, it's got a second book now, I think, with the F, the F word. That's in right. It, it's yeah. got, but it, it's proudly on display in, in a majority of the bookstores here yeah. in the UAE. Cross, cross, think, cross, cross. That's right. Yeah. Cross, cross, cross. But I think that that is a fantastic book. Um, so I actually um, listened to that book as an audio book, mm-hmm. um, and the guy who reads it for um, Audible, um, where I listened to, was, gives a brilliant rend- uh, rendition of that book put so much emotion into what he's saying. But that ethos that comes through that book makes people realise that, it made me realise that there is, a, there is a science around this. And you've got to have, if you're going to take that attitude in life, you've got to be very, very holistic and um, transparent with people. And you've got to make sure that you don't let the small things pull you down in life as well. And sometimes- And most just, people do, don't they? That's why they, do. they, they listen do. to it and it affects their future, affects their lives, kills their ambition. Well, people get so hung up about not mm. having things nowadays. Mm. And I think that's what Mark and his book is very clear about, is that just because you see someone driving a fast car, just because you see someone having an expensive house, or just because you see having someone having a, a beautiful family, it doesn't mean that you're never going to achieve those. But please don't try and weigh yourself down by thinking that you ought to have them. Because you could have it all one day and lose it the next. So I think what he's trying to make people realise is that there's a time and a place for people in this world to achieve their ambition. If they wish to do so. If they wish to do so. If they wish to do so. And if, if you want to be like that former colleague I had who just spent her evenings watching TV. Good luck to you. Yeah. yeah. So be it. I was having this conversation with her. So are, are they the lucky ones? Because they don't have an ambition. They're really, really happy. Yeah. And they die happy. Are, are we the unlucky ones to overthink things and we've got ambition and we keep driving? Let me, tell you, let me tell you a story about an experience I had when I toured the slums of Nairobi. So I was fortunate enough to be taken into the slums of Nairobi, and these are the huge shanty towns, uh, some of the biggest in the world. And you've got people who are absolutely deprived living there. So I went there as a, a young, uh, a late, sort of a, sort of a, a young 20-year-old actually, and uh, I was taken around, and we, we were treated to incredible hospitality from the people living there, who opened up their doors to us. Um, and one thing I remember vividly was just how happy people they weren't happy because they lived in the slums. They were happy because they had no expectation about the riches in life that would make them miserable if they didn't have it. They were happy about the fact that they could meet new people. And children were coming out of the door saying, how are you, how are you, how are you? And smiling and, and being so happy about the fact that they were on this planet and they were a human and they were living another day and they were fulfilling their potential and they were going to school if they could afford it. And that to me made me realize that the riches of this world and the material greed that people can become so fixated about are very, very unhealthy. And so therefore I just think that it's, just, it's not worth trying to pursue those kind of goals if they're not going to make you happy. Yeah, beautiful words. I have a four-year-old. He, he can't download a game on his iPhone. He goes miserable. Gosh. He goes, I know. And I'm, I think when we get older, I'll take him to the streets of Nairobi or similar because they live in Thailand. I'll take him to schools, orphanages, and see how other children live. Get a wake-up call. It's a big wake-up call, isn't it, for anyone who sees it? Yeah. 
I don't know how long we've been on, but I, ho- I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. I think it's been a fantastic conversation. And I hope your listeners agree. I think it's been an absolutely incredible experience talking to you. And thank you very much for giving me the chance to be absolute on the show. Absolute honour. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming. Let's do this again soon, right? Let's do that. I enjoy it. Done. Maybe, maybe next time I can ask you some questions as well so we can hear more about you. No, uh, it's my show and I'll ask the questions. <laughs> I'm just joking. Much love. Much respect. Thank you, Love Gary. to the family. You are. Thank you.